Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of the Stream Time Podcast. My name is Chris Stone. I'm the Senior Content Manager here at Sports Pro Media. I'm back after my week off, which I'm unfortunate to say did not get the result I was looking for. I've gone through all five stages of grief, and I'm on begrudging acceptance as my Cincinnati Bengals fell short in the Super Bowl. I just hope it doesn't take another 31 years to get back. Now, although it's not the result I was hoping for, there are some good things to talk about here at SportsPro. I'm joined, as always, by Nick Meacham, and while I was away, I can no longer call him the managing director. He has now been promoted to CEO here at SportsPro Media. Now, Nick, I do know that you're a modest man, but I certainly think it's worth recognizing that achievement. Oh, cheers, Chris. I just needed you to go away for a bit so I could really shine uh, shine so brightly that uh, I got the recognition I deserve. Uh, <laughs> but no, thanks, Chris. Uh, nice little change after uh, many years. I've been with the company now for about 12 years, so uh, uh, nice little change. Uh, and it really just it's linked with the, the growth of the business. Um, our team's nearly doubled over the last two years, so it's kind of a, just a bit of a shift in, in focus there. And um, But all good, all good. Thank you very much. Awesome. Brilliant. Well, not only am I joined by Nick Meacham, I'm also joined by a special guest who's Tom Bassam. Tom is our digital editor here at SportsPro, and we're grateful to have him on as we're going to discuss one of the more polarizing topics here in the UK, which is around Saturday football and the infamous blackout. Now, before we jump into that, I do want to quickly touch on the podcast that I missed out on while I was away in LA. But Nick, you had the opportunity to speak to Alexander Dreyfus, who's the CEO at Socios. Um, there's a lot of talk in the Web3 space. It's very easy to get lost. But Socios has put itself, I suppose, ahead of other businesses, particularly given the fact it can now say that it's got over 100 different partnerships with teams, leagues, and federations. And I think for me, one of the, the biggest challenges in this space is communication. There's a whole variety of, of tokens, NFTs that all have varying different levels of utility but they're all getting kind of lumped together. And I think this has resulted in confusion and ultimately negativity from fans. So Nick, I know this is kind of one of the things you spoke about with Alex and sort of what fans need to understand specifically about Socios compared to other products. But, you know, just talk us a little bit about some of the highlights from that conversation. Yeah, there was plenty in there and it was it was a good, I mean, what I wanted to get out of that conversation was really understand um, why, firstly, we've seen such an insane reaction or uptake, I suppose, from um, from sports properties to to sign up to Socios. I mean, as I said, it's a hundred. I think it's hundred and twenty now um, that have signed up with them to work with them. A rate unprecedented in this industry to see, uh, you know, a B two B organization partnering up with sports properties at such a rate. Um, alongside that, there's been a lot of media scrutiny with regards to what the fan token offering actually is. So, trying to get under the hood of what are they offering. Um, what are the be- what are the benefits for fans actually? But also, what are the risks? Because that's some of the coverage that we've been seeing a lot of the media is the risk, particularly because it is built uh, around their cryptocurrency and blockchain offering. And uh, I think the podcast what it did do for me is sh- well shone a bit of light on what Socios see it to be. Um, I do think uh, some of the stuff of the fan token holistically, I really like the idea of. But for me, with a bit that does concern me is there's a bit of a conflict in messaging. Uh, and what I mean by that is at some stages, the, you know, the, the cryptocurrency and the blockchain part is a really important part of this fan token offering. It's all built on that. And the trading aspect of that is 
is definitely a piece of it. And you've seen a lot of sports properties really marketing that trading aspect of it. And in fact, the trading bit is how the teams and socios make money off of this relationship. Yet the message was, well, it's nothing to, the trading bit is just one little fan engagement aspect. It's all to do with the fans, it's all to do with this engagement offering that they're getting. It's nothing to do with this trading bit. And I just felt like that bit just feels a bit disconnected. Um, and I can understand why they want the message to sound like that. But I, I don't, I don't, I think it's pretty clear that that's not really synced up uh, in the right way. One other thing I think I found quite interesting was we talked about the partnerships and sponsorships, the business models uh, that are re- existing in those relationships they've been signing, whether it's guaranteed money, whether there's front of shirt sponsorships. And the impact of signing front of shirt sponsorships with the likes of Inter Milan um, and Valencia and a bunch of others. And actually what Alex pointed out, there's that sort of exposure on the front of shirt has had negligible impact in the the trading side of their fan tokens um, or the fan engagement side, I suppose, depending on which way you want to look at it. So there was a lot in there. Um, I could probably go into a, quite a bit more detail. Um, but yeah, I think it's a pretty eye-opening thing to sort of get a sense of really where it sits in the marketplace. And I've actually had a lot of rights holders reach out to me <laughs> asking for my opinion on it all afterwards um, because they're seeing what's happening. They're like, well, well should we be moving with this too? Um, so it's definitely creating a lot of buzz. That's for sure. Tom, I'm not sure what you think, but obviously we've been covering a lot of those socios deals that have been happening and they've been in the news quite a bit lately. Yeah. I listened, I listened keenly to that conversation actually. And I thought some of what he said was, was very interesting. I mean, uh, the, the sell, I'm not really, I'm not really too sure on, um, I'm not really sure like who, but yeah, I'm still not really sure like who fan tokens are for. I mean, they're not for me. Like I, I don't have any interest in deciding like what goes uh like what number my favorite player wears when when he signs or what the the design of the away kit is but i can see why that would appeal to a certain set of fans um but if if the kind of um if the message is that these these are not for like that they're not meant to be kind of appreciating in value then i'm not sure kind of what what buy-in you're going to get beyond uh yeah beyond that kind of super fan who's very invested in making those kind of um small but like still kind of uh, yeah they do bring you into the club those kind of decisions over over kind of i guess superficial um yeah superficial decisions for clubs i think one of the things he was talking about in the pod and i've heard him say before is effectively this is for everyone that can can never make it to a match and we do talk about that a little bit a little bit about that in the industry right that um the digital side of what we're doing in sports is helping enable uh, building a relationship, I suppose, with people in the international markets who would never get to a game. And I remember talking to the Man United guys, that was a big focus for them is how do you bring those people that aren't in the stadium uh, or can never really get to a game, how do you get them closer? Uh, and so his his message there was that's, that's one of the, the, the purposes of this can serve. If you think about the Asian marketplace, there's a huge audience for a lot of these sports properties and th- this might be able to unlock... Uh, that relationship and monetization channel, which otherwise is pretty much running a, the only way they make money out of that directly is, well, as directly as it can be is through broadcast uh, broadcast deals, really. Yeah, I see that point. Um, and I think if you go on, like if you, if you go on any social platform around a game, you get, a, you see a lot of interaction with people who, I mean, they're clearly not at, they're clearly not at the game itself. They're probably not in, 
Liverpool or Manchester, uh, but they are heavily invested. So yeah, that that side of it, I can see. I think I think for me, like it's one of those things where they the socios and that whole kind of fan token um, sector is. It's, it's very big and it's very splashy at the moment, but it might end up only being a, like a, a small revenue source in the end because it's just kind of got such a limited amount. It's got such a limited appeal. But I also could be completely ignorant to this because it's just not. It's just something that, like on a personal level, I'm never going to engage with. Yeah, I, I think for me the interesting thing is you're talking about revenue, and I think you mentioned you know, you're talking about where the majority of revenue is going to come for sports in the future is through digital. You know, we, we there's kind of a global issue with inflation in the moment, but the idea is sort of how much more money can you actually get from TV rights? How much more money can you get from sponsorship? At some point, is sports even sustainable anymore? Because at some point, the only way to keep making profits is either A, have more sports, which we're already seeing pushback from that in the football world about adding more competitions, including a World Cup every two years as opposed to every four years. So if you can't create more of a product, do you um, have to create other products. So this digital one, so it's almost if it's either that or you raise the prices, but fans are only going to pay so much for tickets or broadcasters are only going to pay so much for media rights. You know, there does need to, sports is going to have to continue to look for these other sources of revenue. And it's just a matter of kin. So like associates, like I said, I think their biggest challenge is communication, convince people that this is actually something worthwhile as opposed to the what I talked about, the inevitability that sports maybe isn't sustainable in its current model. Can you get fans to actually believe that they're investing in something and not just adding to the pockets of, you know, rich owners? Yeah, I think you pretty much nailed it, Chris. I think that's that's a, a, a definitely a key part of it all. Um, I, I think it, there's, there's a lot more to come, I think, is the, is the summary on this. Like, I think even this vibe I got from Alex in that interview is, they are working it out a little bit as they go along with the fan token offering. Um, they He was quick to point fingers at the rights owners and the teams to say, hey, they should be offering more as part of this. He says it's dependent on them. Um, he was outlining there's more to come in terms of the evolution of that. Um, so I, I think there's probably more to happen before you know, before the year's out, a quite, a quite dramatic sort of evolution of this, not just going to see more teams, but you're going to see more come into practice. Um, there's a lot of skeptics out there and I think there's right to be skepticism, but if they evolve, if they change and improve things, I think there is a place for something like this, but I think there needs to be more in the mix than what it is today. For sure. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and move from one controversial topic to another, which is really why we, we brought Tom on today. And that's to discuss the, the Saturday blackout and football or soccer, wherever you're coming from in the world. And, you know, as an American, you know, being a non-Brit, it's never really made a ton of sense to me why you would black out all of these games. But I can understand originally why the rule came to be, but it, it certainly does feel more outdated as time goes on. So, Tom, you, you wrote about this last week. You, you know, can you just talk us through um, your thoughts around this um, and maybe perhaps start with a little bit of context for those that, that aren't in the UK market to kind of understand where this issue has come from? Yeah, sure. So, uh the the Saturday afternoon blackout has been around in the UK since uh, I think it's the 1960s. Um, the, and the idea, which is actually very well intentioned, is to make sure that um, basically the basically the TV doesn't cannibalize attendance at live games. Uh, it was introduced when the first sort of 
football broadcast uh, started appearing on TV in the UK. Uh, and I think for a long while, it actually did its job pretty well. But in 2022, there really are, it doesn't seem to me for there to be a need for, for that to exist. So essentially what happens is that at uh, 2.45, um, that is the end of any live football broadcast uh, on a Saturday afternoon. So you, you can't watch any more live football uh, as it happens until 5.15. Uh, at which point the, the the sort of evening window opens up again. Um, and that applies not just to the Premier League, which is sort of what the, the, the very top of the tree, but to the whole of the professional pyramid. So that's three more leagues below the Premier League, the Championship, League One and League Two. And it actually even includes non-league, so the um, semi-professional game as well. At, at some point, uh, I mean, I, th- I think sort of as we've progressed to... Uh, progress to a sort of uh, a marketplace where streaming and access to games is so easy for fans if they really want to get it. Uh, it just doesn't. It doesn't really seem to make much sense anymore. Um, you've got uh, you've got fans in the UK uh, who can, with minimal taps of mouse, can find a stream for the, for the team they want to watch pretty much wherever, whenever they want to. So people who are like people who want to watch the games digitally are doing so anyway. They're just not, uh, they're just doing so illegally. So you've got this kind of odd black market of, uh, of streams um, in, in, that, in that very specific time where you can, um, yeah, where fans can find the games they want, but not by official channels. Uh, and the piece I wrote essentially was about, it wasn't about the Premier League, which actually there is sort of, still a case for retaining the blackout and the Premier League is actually very much in favour of keeping um, of keeping certain games off of TV because they believe it kind of creates a bit of scarcity and drives up the kind of the value of their individual games for the for the broadcasters uh, but the EFL which is below that uh, those three leagues there it, it makes a lot less sense than it did like even five years ago um, so what and especially when the EFL has a has a product which has the ability to deliver those games um during the during the pandemic uh we saw the EFL make a switch to basically say to the clubs you can put all of your games on on TV even even in the blackout window uh and charge fans for access um they were able to do this because they had created a couple uh, a new platform a couple of years before which um, allowed the individual teams to stream their matches outside of the broadcast window. So uh, in the new EFL rights deal signed with Sky Sports, a domestic one, um, it, it carved out about 500-odd games which sit outside the, the Saturday afternoon broadcast window. So these are mostly midweeks or for, like or odd fixtures on Sundays, essentially, um, that, yeah, that they could sell to fans, so for £10 a go. Um, but once we come back into this season again and fans are allowed back in venues, the, the blackout came back in place. So you're left having, having given fans a little taste of what they could potentially have with the iFollow product, and then you're taking it away from them again. Um, and my, um, the piece that I wrote was essentially arguing that when the next uh, media rights deal comes around, that the time is, is, it really is the time to get rid of this, uh, this sort of very outdated blackout rule and um, allow the clubs to stream all the matches that they want. So I've got some questions for or some thoughts on this. Uh, I, I've been um, 
I guess, questioning this for a long, long time now and even trying to break down. I actually was, if I had more time, I was going to get a calculator out, which would be frightening for everyone, but actually do, do some number crunching. But if you were to speculate that even if they, the average deal per, per match that, let's say the Premier League or, or the EFL is making on these, and you slash it by half or even less than that, the net benefit of that to what they might potentially start losing in average revenues in the stadium, I think would just would just make it so much so much more worthwhile. But I think the economics of the lower clubs, the lower clubs, I feel like would struggle with this more to to generate enough of an interest to fund um, to to offset the the revenues generated in the stadium, whereas the bigger clubs should have that easier because I'm inherently, I'm guessing there's, there's going to be a bit more of a, let's say in simple terms, a waiting list to go watch games in comparison to some to, for the smaller teams. But I, I kind of think the solution here is a, to your, to, to Tom's point, they need to, they need to do this. It just doesn't make any sense. Tom mentioned at the piracy side, I haven't seen the numbers recently, but I saw them a while ago and there is an incredible amount of people watching the 3 PM games, whether it's for the premier league or anything uh, in this country. Uh, illegally, and it's worth noting this 3 p.m. blockout is for all the football. So even if La Liga has got a match on, I don't think you can watch that in this country still, which is quite funny. If you remember what what uh, Eleven Sports tried to do, which is they just tried to go, well, we're going to do it anyway, and uh, I think that 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 plan sort of went back, backfired. But the thing I, I, I've sort of really hung my hat on for this is there's there's, there's also a problem in football with about. Um, uh, you know, fans about the types of people going to some of these games. Uh, how do you attract more families to the sport? You know, you've seen instances in football over the last few years where I've heard stories from people where they're too scared now to take their families to to the game. Um, and so I think there has to be like a definitive shift where the shift is push for streaming for people to watch, push those sorts of fans. If they want to come to the games, they still can. But if they don't, they can watch it through streaming and a real and, and like a shift in inertia for the, the whole football ecosystem to go, okay, we're going to be focused solely on attracting families to stadiums and make them make sure the incentives are there accordingly to, to make it more worthwhile. And I do think the economics will work out in their favor. Um, and the part that, as you sort of point out, the pirate thing, I think will, will add up that you'll start seeing some of these turn into direct revenues pretty quickly. And one final thing I would suggest is, should we, could we see a Premier League red zone for 3 p.m.? Could be, could be an idea. Imagine that. Well, we've got Super, Gillette, Super Saturday or whatever it's called, the Super Saturday on Sky. Just turn the, put, some, put some of the video on, on as part of that. And that could be a test bed to see what the appetite's like for something. But obviously something like Super Saturday, which is an audio-only version of Red Zone effectively, has been incredibly successful. So that could be a, that could also be a way of testing the waters on something like this. Yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that in a, in a minute because I, I think it's a really good idea um, and a bit of a no-brainer if you were to open up that window. Uh well, going back to something you said about the, the smaller clubs, that's really the that's really the kind of sticking point for the EFL on this. I think, um, I mean, uh, yeah, it's sort of commonly known that the most of the value in the in the EFL rights deal comes from the Cowboy Cup anyway. Um, so, like most of the most of the fee is is actually around the games in which the Premier League clubs could be taking part in. And um, uh, so, in terms of kind of protecting 
that that income as long as the if as long as the league cup is still around like the it shouldn't impact the value of the rights but it's the it's the um yeah it's the fountain stadiums element i think which which scares the smaller clubs um and but to your point nick the it should be it should be up to them kind of the owner should be put on them to to say come to the ground like don't don't stream the game come to the ground like we can we, we can make this a fun day out we can make this an affordable day day out and you're right it would grow the whole pie um the the, the sort of the real challenge is if like if you're a, a club like i think it, that's easy for a for a club like i don't know um let's pick a nottingham forest for example big club in the championship they get they get good gates that's not really going to it's not really going to change much for them i don't think but i mean the, the example i picked on in the article was Accrington Stanley, which is a tiny club, much smaller revenues. Um, and if you were to kind of take out a few, even a few hundred of their, uh, of, of their sort of, um, yeah, fans that come through the gate every week, that would have a massive impact on their revenues. But I think the, the, the other kind of side to this, and it's a point I made in the piece is that that's because the, the model of the, uh, of EFL I follow at the moment. So the way it works is that, um, fans buy a ticket for the game via their own club. So if um, Accrington are playing Ipswich, Ipswich fans buy their EFI offer, I follow pass via the Ipswich portal and Accrington fans buy them by the, by the Accrington portal and there's no revenue split. So Ipswich gets all of the money that comes into them via their own portal and Accrington gets, gets all the money that comes in via their portal, which is obviously going to be significantly less. Ipswich's record for, uh, like an, for an iFollow game is something like 4,000 buys. Nacrington's is somewhere in the, somewhere in the low hundreds. Um, I think I think in order to make it work, they have to like the EFL has to address that balance, um, so that like you, you're but you're essentially recognising that football is played by two teams and rewarding them equally. I mean, uh, and also you've got to recognise there's got to be some kind of system built in that allows for um, that recognises the difference between certain types of matches, right? So. Um, a, a Saturday game where, um, yeah, Derby are playing in Nottingham Forest. Two teams pretty close to each other geographically. Um, the, it's going to be sort of, yeah, easier for Derby fans to attend the away game. Whereas if it's like a Tuesday night and Plymouth are playing Carlisle, two teams opposite ends of the country, uh, yeah, you're going to have more. You're going to have more um, more away fans buying that that pass. Uh, the system they had during the pandemic season was quite interesting. So basically, you had to meet a a minimum amount um, for away fans for uh, in terms of passes sold. So, say yeah, uh, Shrewsbury are playing MK Dons. Uh, Shrewsbury are on the road. Um, they have to sell um, more than five hundred passes. I'm just plucking numbers out of the air here, but like they they have to sell more than five hundred passes before Shrewsbury make any money from the iFollow revenue for that game. In order so that MK Don's revenue from away fans is fair, essentially, I th- and I think you, I think there's a I think there's a sort of a model to be made in there. I don't know exactly how that looks at the moment, but um, yeah, I, I think I think that could work and would actually provide for the um, the yeah the, the, provide that balance that those smaller clubs need in order to in order for this to work, uh, and also potentially have the like potentially have the kind of uh, the, the, the the real upside of, of growing the whole revenue pie. I mean, I think it was something like 43 million was generated in that season for like buy or follow. Um, 
in that in that pandemic season where no fans were in. So it shows you the kind of potential of what you could create there. And um, on the more broader subject of the of the Saturday three pms, I mean, I think the Premier League. Um, yeah, I think the Premier League would probably want to retain uh, backing those out. I think it makes sense for them. Uh, it keeps it keeps fans in stadiums, and actually, as we all saw during the pandemic, that does make for a better broadcast product. Uh, but uh, yeah, a, a whip around show I think would be would be particular would be popular. Like, uh, uh, yeah, it, at the at the moment, it's bizarre really that you can that so many fans tune in to watch Paul Merson react to something uh, <laughs> when they could just be kind of showing the the clip of that goal. I don't think that's ever going to replace watching a whole game. I don't think. Uh, a proper NFL fan would ever say that like watching uh, watching Red Zone replaces watching a game in the stadium or watching a game live on TV, but it is a different experience. And actually, it could be another product that uh, the NFL add to their uh, their broadcast uh, broadcast tender arsenal. How about you let me throw in a question here? Is bring in the American perspective. You know, the NFL does have a slightly similar blackout policy, which is any home game will be regionally blacked out unless the stadium is sold out. So for me, you know, being the Americans out here thinking, you know, if the idea or the concept behind it was to make sure that fans were going through the gates, you know, there's only so many tickets you can sell to a stadium. So let's say, you know, what whatever game it is, you know, West Ham, London Stadium, I know it's not that great of a stadium, Tom, but let's say it sold out all 60,000 seats. It's only limited to those 60,000 spectators that can see it. But if the goal is to make sure that there's revenue through the gates, what's stopping uh, an NFL model that will allow people to say, hey, if you sell out all of your tickets, the reward for that, the bonus for that is that game can now be shown on broadcast because the implied negative impact of not of having the game on TV and keeping people from going that now that no longer exists. You know, that's just me sitting here as an American of what I know, you know, is do you think something like that's potentially feasible? I feel like it's feasible. I'm not sure how easy it would be to do. I also feel like you get a lot. I mean, because one of the problems with that, right, is that you get uh, clubs counting their season ticket sales as uh, as a sold ticket. So you've actually got empty seats because those fans haven't showed up. Um, but they're, they're counted as a sold ticket and you get, you get franchising, you get clubs like fudging the numbers essentially in order to tip over that point and um and yeah and sell but but that in, in that instance tom that is an example of them trying to showboat their numbers right how many fans they bring in the reality is the economics there is they've made them they've made the money on the ticket the only extra money they're missing out there by not filling that ticket is um is food and beverage sales um, which i'm not sure what the averages are so i think they would learn to get over that i would hope yeah you're probably right you're probably right um I, yeah, I don't know what the technical kind of infrastructure for it is, is that, Chris. I mean, I think there's something, like when 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 can you properly announce that and when would a broadcaster then be able to say, all right, we're going to put the game on TV? Like, uh, is it, does it have to be done a few days before? Does it have to be done at the time? Like, are they set up to just do that instantly? Like, there's, a, I think there's a few challenges to overcome. Um, I think you could probably get to it in the Premier League where the infrastructure is a bit, uh, a lot better than it is lower down. Um, and and the, yeah, I think that would be the model in which you would do it. Um, yeah, I don't think it would work in the sort of lower tech end of the uh, end of the EFL, but it could work in the Premier League. It's just finding out, it's, as ever with these things, I think there's a mechanism. It's just finding out like what it is. Yeah, my guess would be for the Premier League, it'd be pretty easy because given my friends all have you know Peacock back in the states, 
I know every game's getting broadcast with a full production team. So I think it's more of agreeing on the the licensing side and sort of where you determine what games are. But I know every, it's not like the, there's only one broadcast booth that's taking place, even if there's only one game being shown in the UK. Yeah, I mean, that that's a key point. It's like these games are being broadcast in other places. Uh, in fact, people are watching them currently. They're watching those 3PM games pirated in another in another language or at least in an American with American uh, English or whatever the case may be. So they are being watched and they are being broadcast. And even at the lower tiers, um, there's companies like your Pixelots of the World and a couple of others, the names escape me off my head, which are AI-based um, tech solutions with that function, um, that manage the camera production automatically. So even at the, the League 2, League 1, the cost for access for use of those platforms is pretty low like I, i've seen some of the the, the the proposals for it and then if as long as i think for me the whole issue is down to the po- politics and the economics of all of this right um yeah i i i guess then those the the kind of messaging is like what how do you market that game like say it's like a, a i don't know create a situation right where you where at 2 30 on a Saturday afternoon, the game is the game is announced. It's confirmed. It's sold out. You can you can put that game on TV. You've then got half an hour to tell people that it's going to go there. I don't doubt that they can do the production, as you said. Like it's being broad, all games are being broadcast in other countries, and like it, even at the lower levels, you, you're right. You can you can install a install a camera. I mean, with with the iFollow thing, all games are technically being broadcast in the low leagues too. Um, it's just yeah, it's just creating that messaging um, and and working it out and. But yeah, I, I don't think it would be necessary. I don't necessarily think it'd be a massive problem. I just think that you also don't always have the like the the interest in a in a Saturday three pm Premier League game. I mean, I'll take Brighton Burnley. Like, okay, you might get. Um, I don't know. I, I, I honestly think it'd be the, the numbers around thirty thousand that would that would potentially watch that game live uh, on pay TV. Um, if if it was if it was if it was just broadcast, uh, so they're small fan bases, and actually, mo- even with those clubs, those most of those fans in the UK are going to be are going to be out of the game. I was just going to say one final thing is I mentioned it before, and I think Tom makes some some plenty of good points there. And I, so I, I still fundamentally think there's a lot to be done. It's not going to just be a, a flick the switch moment in this because of a, as I said, it's economical or political here. Um, the economics can be worked out. To, to Tom's point, you know, we can work out what is the model to make sure that no one really, uh, at least at the bottom end, the ones that are most likely to to be left uh, high and dry with this model, potentially, there's a model in, that we can put in place to, to negate that pretty easily. Um, but the politics come in here and the greed comes in where no one is going to even want to give up a percent of a percent if it's coming from their bottom line. Uh, and that's the issue. If they can overcome that, then it won't take much for the Premier League to give up if they wanted it to happen, which to you, Tom's point, they probably don't for the scarcity piece. But if you could add, if they gave point, well, like 1% of their uh, media rights revenues and drip fed that down through the rest of the food chain to offset some of those costs, it, they would make it up very, very quickly. But there's a, it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. So before we move ourselves on, Tom, you know, you mentioned you wrote this piece really more in focus of the EFL and some of the lower leagues. Do you know when that new or that next rights negotiation comes up so we can come back and review this? <laughs> Thanks for putting me on the spot. Um, 
got a feeling that it's um, 2024, 2025, but I could be wrong. Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure there's a Twitter account where you can tweet at it to say, remind me of this on whatever date. So we'll just, when I see this tweet come out on Sports Pro Influencers, I'll set a reminder and we'll check it because this will be a fun conversation to come back on <laughs> to see if we were right or completely wrong altogether. Um, so moving on, uh, one of the companies we've spoken about recently between Nick and I is Around a Zone. That's not always been positive news given what happened recently with discovering BT Sport. But there was an interesting uh, kind of partnership that's going to be taking place uh, between DAZONE and up and coming Buzzer. Um, I know Tom Buzzer is someone that you've got uh, plenty of notes on, someone that you've covered in the past. But do you perhaps want to give us a little bit of background on sort of what's taking place in that deal and why it's relevant? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting deal for Buzzer. It's their first, I think, that they've announced with a a broadcaster as opposed to uh, as a, as opposed to a rights holder in the US. Um, and to give a sort of little overview of Buzzer, it's essentially a mobile platform which um, notifies its users when it thinks that something that they might think is that the user might think is worth watching is happening. So. Uh, I mean, when I uh, when I interviewed Bohan, the, the CEO of Buzzer, it was a couple of years ago now. Um, one of the first things he did was show me like the the route, the route from notification through to watching the game, and it was I can't remember exactly the, the player, but it was like so and so is on a hot streak in the fourth quarter of this NBA game. Tap to watch now. You tapped, um, and it gave you the option to join for a very small micropayment. Um, and then you're just straight into the live game. It took probably less than 20 seconds. Uh, it's one of those things where you see it and you're like, man, that makes so much sense. So it's just a really good idea. Um, uh, uh, the way that it's developed and the way that it is developing is that it's, so Buzzer has had a few tie-ups with different, various different properties um, in order to get access to, to, its, to its live rights, essentially. So uh, it has a deal with NBA for their league pass. It has a deal with... Um, one of the golf tours, I believe it is, maybe, might, be, might even be both, uh, PGA and, oh, yeah, so actually, so it's got NBA, uh, PGA Tour and NHL, uh, where essentially it's bought a kind of mini mobile um, look-in right and to provide access to those games. So its users can tap, tap, make a payment, and the money is either, it either goes to, um, yeah, it either goes to the NBA um, or the NHL or the PGA Tour, uh, with Buzzer taking a sort of a little little cut for providing the access. Uh, the deal with the zone is interesting because it's the first time they've done a deal with a, a broadcaster as such. Uh, in the US, the zone still has um, the rights to matchroom boxing and a couple of other boxing promotions. So essentially, the idea for this is that it uh, gives Buzzer users um, the, the potential to watch like boxing when it gets interesting so i mean we'll take the the kelbrook amir carden fight which is uh took place over the weekend here round five bus, buzzer will note your uh give you a notification kelbrook well on top in amir khan fight click to watch the last two rounds or click to watch the click to watch the fight as it happens um so yeah that's that's really what this deal opens up um and for buzzer i think it could be the first of a few kind of similar deals in this in the sector, they always said that they wanted to have um, deals across like both the sort of buy side and the sell side. Uh, so yeah, with if, if it proves to be successful, then it's definitely a model they'll look to replicate elsewhere. So Tom, um, I haven't seen the platform in action. 
Are you watching it in the buzzer platform? Because one of the things that they, I remember seeing the market was you get access to the NBA uh, league pass. So do you watch it in there in buzzers or do you get shifted across straight, straight to NBAs? I think it depends on the, on, on the, like on the structure of each individual deal. Um, some of it will be, it will serve as sort of just like a, an aggregator for your teams that you like. Um, and, and sometimes it will be a, a the platform itself that you can watch in uh, it just depends i think on on the deal i i don't know which uh which one that is with um with the zone or even actually with the others but the yeah the, the idea as it, as it was explained to me was that the option was there for both depending on the deal that they had in place mm. do you have any sense of what how those deals are constructed i.e are they just getting a cut basically every time they bring in a new user or um is it more complicated than that yeah, I, I think that's pretty much it. Um, I, I mean, I imagine they're different per like different per per deal, but I think the um, yeah the, the way that the way that Bobby explained it to me was that like it it it's a good selling point for them is that they can actually be like, look, we we've, we've got the power to to drive people to your platform, um, uh, and for doing so, we will take a little cut of the money rather than being a sort of we're going to cannibalize your product here. So like it, the idea is not, they're not trying to replace um, a, a Peacock or a Paramount plus or, a, or an ESPN plus they're um, yeah, they're, they're sort of serving as a, as a tool to drive people to them. Um, and, and also offering people a sort of a quick look into to games they might want to watch and create an interest in them. So yeah, the model I think generally is to yeah take a, take a small cut, but it's, I think yeah, it's a bit of an agnostic approach, I guess. I mean, look, for me, I think not that we've got much time left with this, but I would say that they've definitely got the attention of the industry and they're trying to fill a bit of a, a definitely an acquisition challenge, I suppose, within the market. Because historically, if you, you manage a subscription product, you would then have to get someone to subscribe to your product before they'd be able to access it. Whereas Buzz is just trying to make that, that user journey just much, much smoother. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense. Part of me, though, feels like it's a bit of marketing 101 for some of the broadcasters. Like I would have thought ESPN, as an example, would be doing these things already uh, in terms of trying to drive traffic to to ESPN's owned platforms to get people to sign up and so forth. So it'd be interesting to see if they can get the scale um, of partnerships in place so they can become this true aggregator so people need to want it right they need to want to be notified of these things it's perfect for betting obviously it's a huge betting um solution like if you can you know, coming out towards a game and you've got a bet running you can be kept up to date one click you're watching the game that's going to be really appealing and then obviously the us that's at a huge area of growth now i think they've done a deal recently with uh, FanDuel, is it if i remember correctly yeah FanDuel. yeah i was gonna say i mean i think yeah betting you're right is one of the the the, the bigger uh yeah, the bigger routes into this, I think, and and that can open up a lot of, um, yeah, open up a lot of doors, uh, especially with the, I mean, it, it depends how it's positioned, isn't it? Is like, so you can watch games um, via betting platforms in the UK. I don't know how, how possible that is currently uh, in the US, whether or not they've carved out those live rights as well, or not. That's something that they could potentially look into sharing. Um, yeah, within within the the buzzer platform, I guess it depends on the the. The licensing behind those deals and what technically counts as a betting platform and what doesn't but yeah I, I think you're right like that is that's a lot of these kind of digital streaming engagement platforms are all looking to 
uh, implement betting solutions in at some at some way so they can try and feed off of that big pie. Yeah. Well, it's only growing in America. I didn't see the final numbers. Anyone see how many bets were made on Super Bowl Sunday? Oh, I did have this figure. You might have to give me 10 seconds to find it. I was going to say, well, I'll, I'll uh, fill, the, fill the gap. Um, you will incidentally see uh, Buzzer and uh, the CEO Bohan at Sports Pro OTT USA in two weeks' time uh, in New York. So good little uh, segue to our next event, which is looking like a cracking, cracking event, uh, if I do say so myself. Tom? So... Uh, in answer to your question, um, I, I don't have the I don't have the whole of the U.S. market. What I do have um, is that oh, no, I've clicked on the wrong one. <laughs> uh, no, sorry, it's gone. One point seven gazillion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Awesome. Well, I'm sure people can find that number easily enough, but it does make sense for Buzzer. Um, now, before we cut things off, I just want to quickly let everybody know what you have in store after this. Uh, you'll be hearing from our media and technology editor, Steve McCaskill, um, who's an absolute genius when it comes to the OTT and streaming space. Um, certainly makes all of us here on the podcast feel um, a little bit uh, smaller in stature when we listen to him go through some of the verbiage and different abbreviations when it comes to this space. He's got a really interesting interview with FX Digital, and they're talking about kind of what they're doing for the sports industry. So definitely stay on. Uh, for that. You'll definitely want to hear it. And like I said, Steve's uh, f fantastic when it comes to all this. So thank you once again, everybody, for joining us. Nick, pleasure as always. Tom, we'll have to get you back again soon. Yeah, not if I can't uh, sort out my figures, but thanks very much for having me, Chris. <laughs> Cheers, Chris. <laughs>
Yeah, of course. I mean, t- TV in itself is an incredibly fragmented space. So what we always say to clients is that it's important to get the basics right. Um, delivery of content on a connected TV device can be so tough and challenging because every device expects something different. You might find that your video streams work great on a Samsung Tizen TV, but they don't render particularly well on an Android TV. So the first thing and the most important thing really is to get to get those basics right. Once you've launched the application and, and you've got the sort of basic fundamentals down, then it's about expanding and growing it from there. But yeah, the, the focus really on, on connected TV should be to get those basics right first. And obviously you work with all kinds of companies, not just those involved in sport. Um, so who, but when it comes to sport in particular, who do you work with in the industry? Is it broadcasters? Is it sports organizations themselves? Because broadcasters will understand a bit about the technology. They'll have some things they've done themselves, but sports organizations may not have that experience or the expertise in, in-house. So is it different when you approach both, um, sorry, is it different when you approach one, um, someone who's got experience and someone who's doing it for the first time? Yeah, of course. So really, we work with anyone that has content that they want to distribute. And this could be broadcasters, but it could also be rights holders, for example. Um, and of course, it's different. Uh, you know, We work with clients that in some instances lo- know lots about connected TV and, and the challenges that it poses. And we work with some clients that need some 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 support in that. And we work with both. Um, where we tend to fit in best is where clients have an existing back-end infrastructure uh, and, and potentially maybe do their web or mobile piece in-house themselves or, or through a third party. And then we come in to really bring that connected TV experience and knowledge. We have stacks of devices in the office here in, in Old Street and, and a QA and development team that are trained in exactly how to use those devices. So uh, we're uniquely positioned to be able to support specifically on connected TV. Yeah, because going direct to consumer is hard work uh, for media companies and sports organizations who are more used to creating content than the distribution side of things and, and handling all of that, that technology. So are there any sort of specific challenges they have when they come to you that they want you to help address. Yeah, so obviously D2C can be quite daunting, especially if it's if it's something that's new to, to clients. And I think um, really education of the platform and, and connected TV uh, it is one of our first challenges. It's it's whilst it's not relatively new, it's relatively unknown. It's very different to web and mobile. Um, and, and our first step really is to to give our clients an understanding of of not only the potential of connected TV, but the the challenges that they'll they'll come across when they start working with it. One of the particular challenges is is the submission process, uh, which I can go into detail on on later. Later, but it's really um, really tricky once you've got an application built to then have a great relationship with the vendors to be able to get it live on their stores. So what, what's the difference between creating a mobile app and a connected TV app? I mean, it's not, I guess it's, it's not simply a case of just blowing up for larger screens. Unfortunately not. So connected TV obviously is, like I mentioned earlier, stacks of different devices. Um, with a mobile application, you're, you know, you're relatively confined to Android and, and Apple. So you can use technologies like React Native and, and build once and deploy on both, or you can use the native technologies of both devices to build, build for those devices. Um, on connected TV, really, you have to build something that covers quite a lot of bases. So you need something that's going to work well across Android TV, Apple TV, but also something that's going to work well across all the web-based devices like Samsung, LG, and PlayStation and Xbox. So trying to find um, a code base that will that will give you that spread is is a particular challenge. Um, and that's before we even mention mention platforms like Roku, which are a completely different language, which is which is BrightScript, which brings in in even more complications. So so understanding the right way of building applications to deploy with 
with great reach is is of course a challenge and then beyond that you have the 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 sort of essence that it is a completely different experience so it's not a, a very close you know sort of interactive mobile experience it's, it's what we call the 10 foot experience so you're far away from the screen and you're using a remote control to navigate around the screen which is very different to sort of the free and easy ability to use a farm or a mouse to navigate around so yeah lots of lots of ux challenges especially if you're not not familiar to the to the world of tv yeah, I guess it is a bit of a tall order for someone working at a, a sports team to know all, all those different quirks and all those different different languages. And works in nicely to my next question is the issue of fragmentation. And we've touched upon the different ecosystems and uh, you know app stores and, and operating systems. But even within those, there are huge amounts of um, there's a huge amount of diversity when it comes to device type. I mean, uh, I, I know I know we're talking more about TV, but if you look at Android, for example, there's so many devices that run Android. Um, and, and I know it's the situation's got a little bit better. So when it comes to, to the devices you work with, how difficult is the issue of fragmentation um, in terms of developing and supporting and, and creating an experience for each platform? Yeah, it's, it's a really serious issue. I mean, you mentioned Android there, Android there, and that is, of course, immense because the way that Android works is, you know, Google have the ability to install it onto all the various different set-top boxes and and, and hardware, um, which means that every time you get an application up on an Android TV device, it could be um, rendered differently to what it is on, a, on an alternative Android TV device. And it doesn't stop there. Every time, say, Samsung launch a new 2022 TV device, chances are the application that works on the Samsung 2021 device that you've built won't necessarily work on the on the. 2022 device so with every year the fragmentation issue gets bigger and bigger um and, and when you have the devices like Samsung Tizen that still hold significant market share and LG that is equally as strong in some markets, you can't really ignore them and just focus on things like Android TV and Apple TV. Um, you know, each of these devices have a different operating system and a different build approach. Um, and then when you start to consider things like games consoles, like Xbox and PlayStation, it gets even even more tricky. And then, you know, we've not even spoken about set-top boxes and, and you know, that that it adds even more fragmentation. And, and last year we saw Comcast and Sky release new, new smart tv products uh, like x class and glass and and they use the rdk operating system in in a particularly different way to some of the others so so yeah really unfortunately fragmentation is a huge issue and and it and it doesn't look like getting any better anytime soon even with the growth of platforms like android tv because of the popular popularity of the other devices i was literally about to ask there is there is a small trend towards aggregation it's not going everywhere but would that would that make is that something you're seeing is something that would make your your life easier the challenge is that I think right now there's a massive war going on for that, you know, that TV space in 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 the living room, and it, it's really tussling between many different brands. Android TV is experiencing significant growth at the moment, which is which is a great thing because it's a great platform to work with. But you know, in in Asian markets, Samsung is is still incredibly large, and it is still the most dominant platform. So it's not going anywhere for a long time. Um, and then when you have companies as mighty as Comcast releasing their own set-top box and smart TV devices, it, it, it doesn't look like getting any better. And, and I think um, it will be a long time before any one of those devices is claimed king of the space, basically. And once you've created an application, how much of time goes into testing to make sure that, that it, will work, it works across all, the, all these platforms? Because again, I'm sure that's something that is beyond the means of some, some of your customers to know every single device and be able to test the app. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's beyond the means of even ourselves. It's not it's not physically possible to get some of these devices that our, our customers are using. Um, a significant amount of time goes into testing. So we have lots of devices here in the office, and our QA team is almost as large as our development team because they need to be manually testing on these devices as well as running automation tests. So, yeah, the the QA effort is is quite 
quite significant. And and I think what's special about our QA team is that they have to be trained in how to use all these various different devices. And and you know, as I said, the devices change change every year, so that that needs to be uh, be kept up with as well. I mean, the shift to OTT is something that I I cover quite a lot for for Sports Pro. And one of the the recent things I've been I've been uh, looking at quite a lot is Olympic Games. And I know you have worked with with Discovery and Eurosport in, in the past, and and they they told us that this is one of the most complex sporting events to cover, and and obviously they're trying to stream it all. So bearing in mind the complexities of some of these events and and the challenges that that uh, streaming services face, are there any sort of specific challenges uh, from cl- from client work you can share or a project you're particularly proud of, so perhaps a novel solution or something that you didn't think was possible, but you managed to find find uh, a way to make it work? The biggest challenge I would say is is the submission process. Um, if you think about the fact that you know, you've know you got all the platforms we've mentioned today, which could be nine platforms, for example, and if a client wants to launch across nine platforms at any one time, they have to go through nine independent submission processes. Uh, and each of the submission processes differ depending on the vendor you're working with. So you might work with Android and their submission process is very quick, or you might work with Samsung and they take you know a month or two to get back to you. So the biggest challenge we have is is that launch piece and you know working it out in terms of timing. So when you've got a time-sensitive event such as the Olympics, it's really important to be really ahead of time with submission because you need to be working in, you know, four to six weeks, maybe even longer to make sure that you can get feedback from the vendors and then resolve any issues that they might raise. And is it, um, does, does, it does the process differ between launch and, and, and updates or is it the same? It depends on the platform uh, and, and the approach. So where you work with the web-based platforms like Samsung, LG, PlayStation, Xbox, and the set-top boxes, the update process can be a little bit easier because you have the control of, of the web application that, that essentially you've built. Uh, having said that, a lot of those vendors will try and encourage you to, to sort of go, re, re-go through the submission process every time you make updates. Um, and if you make any updates that involve APIs that need to be exposed through the native devices themselves, then you'll still need to do an update of what we call the container application, which the web application is housed in. So so the, the website is a bit easier. Um, and, and the way we build, we also incorporate native into it too. So when it comes to the native, native builds, yeah, typically Typically, you do have to go through a resubmission process every time you make updates. Um, updates are generally tested and launched quicker than, than an initial application submission. Um, and then you can do other things. There's technology such as CodePush that, that sort of makes that, that process a little bit more seamless. But generally, yeah, as you're making updates, it's important to keep the vendors abreast of them. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's something that we as consumers often don't realize the amount of effort that goes in when, when they want a problem fixed. Um, so looking ahead a little bit, um, what what sort of uh, challenges the industry and trends do you see in, in, in the short term? Obviously, this is, this is a sector that's changing all the time, both in terms of, of technology and, and consumer trends. And the technology is becoming more powerful all the time. Connectivity is spreading with uh, you know, full fiber and, and 5G is making a lot of things more possible. So what do you think is going to happen and how is that going to affect your business? So, yeah, I mean, we're seeing significant growth across connected TV in particular. You don't need to search far to find statistics on video consumption and how connected TV really is becoming the default um, viewing platform for people that want to watch content. I think, you know, if you're if you're watching sports content, it's unlikely you're going to be doing that sitting on a on a train. You're you're likely to be doing that sitting at home in front of your you know your connected TV and that ten foot experience. So, so I think if if you're a sports brand looking to grow your audience and give your customers a better experience, you have to be 
not only considering connected TV, but putting that first ahead of things like mobile and web now, because that is the preferred viewing platform. Uh, historically, we've seen connected TV dominated by these tier one operators. You know, you think ESPN, Disney Plus, Discovery, Netflix. And I think now there's an opportunity for those smaller tier two or tier three brands to start really making a move onto connected TV and using that to their advantage. There's lots, there's lots that can be done in terms of working with the vendors to promote your applications that, that could potentially give greater greater reach to, to a lot of these applications. So, so yeah, that's that's where we see a lot of growth at the moment in creative in particular. Um, and when it comes to to the industry, I think um, you know we all talk a lot about subscription fatigue and how frustrated lots of users are getting paying subscription fees. And I think there's a lot there's lots of conversations we're having now of our clients specifically around how we can in, integrate advertising into into their experiences and and potentially if you've got something that's particularly niche as a sport that you're trying to distribute content for, then there, there might well be a huge opportunity for you to create um, a, a TV application that has advertising behind it. You, you'll have a particularly strong and loyal following that would that would flock to your, app, at your application. And ad- additionally, that that following of yours could be quite niche and it could be great for particular advertisers that want to advertise their their products and services within your within your content. So so yeah, the real growth we're seeing is is in CTV in general, but also in in sort of AVOD as a as a business model. Yeah, diversification of of revenue streams is certainly something that's that we, we see in the market yeah exactly and i mean we're we're seeing now a lot of customers i think discovery recently announced the idea that they're going to introduce a, a, a another tier of subscription offering into into their uk application which will be an ad light version so we're now seeing the combination of subscription vod and, and advertising vod into a single application which is which is another super interesting thing that's happening and not to mention, obviously, the way that the way people consume content is changing too. So I think it's it's not silly to say that in the in the not too distant future we might be in a world whereby we're sitting in our driverless cars consuming connected TV as well. And I think that's something that excites me and maybe scares me a little bit as well. Uh, I think you know the thought of being able to watch the, watch the match while I'm travelling without having to uh, to risk my safety is something <laughs> yeah. I would look forward to. Um, so what we're t- what I'm taking this is is a bit big big screen is king no matter. How important mobile is going to be in the future? Yeah, I think mobile definitely has a place. Let's let's consider that. I mean, the the one challenge with big screen that mobile sort of has a benefit of is is getting people to that big screen. You know, we don't have the benefit of you know organic search reach, for example. There is no Google for the connected TV, um, and really we rely on mobile and web pushing people to connected TV to download the application. But once someone has downloaded the application, generally consumption of video content is better across connected TV. And I think in a lot of the projects we work with, we see that video consumption is in in a lot of cases the significant the significant platform on connected TV as opposed to, to mobile and web. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your your insights today. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, that's goodbye from me. Mm-hmm.